Just before we come to the preaching of God's word, let's stand as we look to him for his help. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we bow in thy presence now in the need of this moment. We confess unto thee, O Lord, that we are not worthy for these things. Lord, we have no uh, power in and of ourselves. Even our bodies are frail, mortal frames. Lord, we pray that thou would then meet with us now. Pour out thy spirit upon us, we pray. Touch this mortal frame. That the frailty of the flesh would not be an obstacle to the preaching of the word. Lord, we pray that thou would touch the lips of the preacher as it were with a live coal from off the altar. That these words would not be man's words, but the very word of the living God. We pray, O God, that thou would open hearts to receive thy word, that thou would give help in the hearing of the word of God, that everyone gathered would hear a word from thyself. Lord, now we pray, send the promised Holy Ghost. Come, O Lord, and endure us with that power that comes alone from thee. We are casting our all upon thee this day. We are depending on thee. We are trusting thee, O Lord, for prevailing words. Grant them to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we turn back this morning to that passage we read in Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. And for our text this morning, we will be considering the first six verses of this chapter. Nehemiah chapter 4, from verse 1 to verse 6. The reputation of the church of Jesus Christ today is at a low ebb. The typical person living in Britain today has absolutely no time for the things of God. They harbor the lowest views of the church of Christ and of God's people. At best, the church is ignored. The Christian faith is considered to be little more than superstition. The attitude of the world to the church is one of scorn, is one of mockery. The things of God are hated by the world. Well, that was precisely the position that the church was in during these days of Nehemiah. The 70 years of exile in Babylon had come to an end of all people. The pagan king Cyrus, as had been prophesied 150 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah, Cyrus had commissioned the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. And a batch of them had indeed gone back. Although we may suspect that the uptake in that return had not been as encouraging as we might have expected after 70 years of the Lord's chastisement. 
But nonetheless, some had returned to the land of promise. The temple had been rebuilt. There was slow reform underway. The Levites had been brought back. Sacrifices had been offered. And some form of defensive wall had been built around, at least around Zion. But later in that same generation, maybe 20, 30 years later, we come to Nehemiah's day and the time frame that's in view here. And what we find is that initial enthusiasm, that initial surge to the work, well, it has faltered somewhat. And the reform has stalled. And the walls, those feeble walls that have been built up, well, they have been broken down again. And progress is slow. And the church of Jesus Christ in the land of promise is surrounded by the enemies of God. When we come to this chapter 4, in the history that has gone before it, Nehemiah has returned to Jerusalem and he has set the people to work in rebuilding the walls. That's the focus. That's what the work is all about here. But then he meets with this opposition. Three times in this chapter, we read of the enemies of God hearing about God's work. In verse 1, the enemies of God heard and they mocked, but God's people prayed and they worked. In verse 7, they heard and they pl planned to get violent, but God's people were warned. And in verse 15, they heard, but they were powerless, yet God's people persevered. For a time then this morning looking to God for his help. We want to look at the first of these hearings. From verse 1 to 6. And we want to consider these verses under this title. When the world mock. When the world mock. We will see that the church prays. And the church works. Notice then in the first place, in verses 1 to 3, we have the mockery of the world. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Here we read of Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat was a Moabite. We know Sanballat to have been a governor in the reign of, in the region of Samaria under the reign of the Persians. He was something of a vassal to the Persians. Here we have Tobiah the Ammonite. He's also described in chapter 2 as Tobiah the servant. 
These enemies then that we meet with here were enemies who were serving under the same civil rulers as Nehemiah. They had the same civil masters. But notice that the enemies that the church was facing in those days, they were an ancient enemy. At the beginning of verse 1 and also verse 3, we read that it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth. And in verse 3, we read, Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him. Being Moabites and Ammonites, these two men represent a long history of animosity and hatred against the church. The Moabites and the Ammonites, of course, they descend from those illegitimate children of Lot's daughters. They were no friends of the seed of the woman. And their animosity and their hatred towards the church emerges here in the form of mockery. They are incredulous that God's work is beginning to progress after such a long time of nothingness. They hate the fact that Jerusalem is being rebuilt. They despise it. We are told in the first verse that Sambalat was wroth and took great indignation. The language that is used here speaks of a burning hatred. Quite literally, it's a flaring of the nostrils. Oh, what anger, what spite, what malice, what hatred towards the things of God. But here's the thing. That same word is the word used to describe Cain's reaction whenever God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not his. Back in Genesis 4, we read that Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. It's the same hatred. The first generation of man born to a woman hated the church with the very same hatred. So although Moabites and Ammonites were indeed ancient enemies, the hatred that they represent, the hatred that they exhibit towards the cause of Christ was more ancient still. It's a hatred that goes all the way back to the beginning of the history of mankind. But then we see the antagonism of this enemy. We're told that they mocked the Jews. And in verse 3 it says, he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria. They mocked. The idea of mocking is that of making stammering, babbling noises as though they were making fun of someone who's speaking in a foreign language. It's what the ancient Greeks would have called barbarians. They're calling them names. And we see that they were not simply mocking alone. It's not two men that are standing taunting them, but they were causing the whole of society to mock them. Verse 2, he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria. Now, given the antiquity of this antagonism, we ought not to be surprised that it's the same hatred that we later see being spewed out against the Savior himself. 
This mockery, this scorn, this hatred is what the words of Christ uh, relay to us in that 22nd Psalm. Psalm 22, of course, it's a psalm that gives us insight uh, to the inner life of Christ. And we read there in verse 7, All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the heads. We know, of course, this came to pass in the times and the days of Christ's humiliation. That phrase, laugh me to scorn, it's the very same mocking that we have in our text here in Nehemiah. These enemies of the gospel, because that's what they're opposed to. Even then, these enemies of the gospel treat the people of God, they treat the cause of Christ with utter disdain, with complete scorn. They hate the gospel, yet they're restrained in what they're able to do against it. And so they mock, and so they belittle, and they poke their malicious fun at the people of God. But the reality, as we will come to see in a moment, the reality is that this antagonism of these enemies against the cause of Christ is not directed merely against God's people, it's against God himself. We have that in verse 5. We read there that they have provoked thee to anger. What is clearly in view here is that these enemies, they were the enemies of God. It's God. It is God whom they mock. This is seen even more clearly when we see the contents of their mocking. Look at the attack of the enemy. The second part of verse 2 and likewise verse 3. What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Verse 3, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. There's a three-pronged attack here that encompasses the entire work of God. They attack the people. These feeble Jews. The word for feeble is a word that depicts the people as being languid or weak. The sense of the word is that of a dripping, a uselessness. But they refer to them not only as feeble, but feeble Jews. Who were the Jews? They were God's own covenant people. That's who they were. It was not the people who were the problem in the minds of these enemies. The problem was that these people, these Jews, represented the covenant gods. They stand for Jehovah. That's the problem. That's why they hate them. In the eyes of the enemies of the gospel, the church of Christ is nothing more than some weak, limp, feeble people. A people who need religion as a prop. A people who are deceived into believing feebles. The world, friends, this morning sees the church as powerless. They attack the people, but they attack the purpose. Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? It's clear that the enemies have really no true concept at all of the purpose of the church. But what they see is outward activity. And the outward activity that they see, they attack it with ridicule. 
this reference to fortifying, it's, it's, it's directly attacking the immediate task of breaking up those broken walls, of building up the defenses of the city of God. We'll look at the walls and the verses that follow, but the point here is this. In this book of Nehemiah, the walls stand for all that is the work of God. The walls are a powerful symbol of the fulfillment of God's covenant. God has promised a land. He's promised a people. He has promised a seed. A land that will be occupied. A land that will be secured to the people of God. And the walls are a powerful symbol of that covenant. But here the enemies show their ignorance of God's plan. They speak of making an end in a day. They're basically saying to the people, there's no way you're going to be able to build these walls up in one day. Of course, they're quite right. They're correct. They wouldn't make them in a day. But that was never what they planned to do. That wasn't their purpose. But there's a deeper discouragement intended in the words. They are taunting the people with this thought. What they're really saying is this, never mind today's work. At the end of today, you will look back and you won't see what you've done. It's so insignificant. It's so worthless. It's so pointless. So much so that really you're never going to finish. And then they speak of the heaps of rubbish. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish which are burned? And this puts us in mind of the actual scene in which the church was laboring in those days. Picture this scene. The walls are broken down and the gates are burned. That's what we're told back in chapter 1. And the materials that they are using to build these walls are practically beyond use. Who could possibly bring this pile of rubbish back to a usable form? Who could possibly give second life to this pile of dust? This, my friends, this morning is the challenge of the enemy to God himself. Is even Jehovah able to revive the work in the midst of the years? That's what they're asking. That's what the enemies of the gospel are saying. Is Jehovah able to give life to the dust? But they also attack the progress. Even that which they build. If a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Now we have Tobiah chipping in his tuppence. How brave he is when he has the army of Samaria standing by him. And this jeer that he adds, it's an escalation in the mockery. He's saying, not only are you not capable of doing any good, but the little that you have already done is pointless. Because even a fox could knock it over just by walking on it. This would have been a vivid image in the mind of those returning Jews. Because speaking many years earlier, Jeremiah described the desolate state of Jerusalem in his lamentation in these terms. He says, for this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim. Because of the mountain of Zion which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. That was Jeremiah's lament. Look at the destruction of Jerusalem. The foxes are walking on the rubble. 
So there was something very poignant about this attack because the foxes had indeed trampled over the ruins of Jerusalem. And they had done so as part of God's judgment on his own people all those decades ago. So it's as if Tobiah is crying out to them and saying, where is your God? Isn't he the one that ruined Jerusalem? Wasn't it God who sent the foxes to clamber over the ruins of your holy city? Hasn't he brought you into these low days? And now all your puny efforts to rebuild Zion is like nothing more than sandcastles. Friends, this morning doesn't it all have a ring of familiarity about it for us today? Can't we hear the enemies of the gospel today hunting in the same way? Isn't it the case that the church today suffers from this very same mockery from the same ancient enemy? The world around us, they point at us and they laugh. They defy the God of Israel to show himself. They mock his people as feeble and weak. They mock the cause of Christ as fairy tale stuff. They mock our current state. They mock the small progress of the church as being insignificant and outdated. This is the environment in which we operate today as the people of God, is it not? Here the walls are broken down. And the materials that we build with are like dust and ashes. No sooner do we seem to take a step forward than it's five steps backwards. Our efforts in the cause of Christ seem to us to be so futile and all along the world stand by. And they point at us and they mock and they laugh. And they feed off each other and they rouse each other in mockery and jeering. My friends, this morning, child of God, this ought not to surprise us. The design of Satan is to discourage you. But you ought not to be discouraged by the mockery of the world. Here is no new thing. This is what Abel faced. This is what the church of Noah's family faced. This is what all of the patriarchs faced. It's what these Israelites faced when they were marching through the wilderness out of Egypt. This is what our Savior himself faced as he walked on this world. When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords walked in this humanity, when the Savior of the lost dwelt among us, he was mocked. And he was laughed to scorn. And all that the world has to say against you today, it's all against Christ as the head of the church. But far from being a discouragement, far from accomplishing its purpose of halting the work of Christ, we should be even more emboldened by their treatment. Is that all what Christ himself encouraged us with? The words of John 16, these things have I spoken unto you. Why? That in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. 
We see then the mockery of the world, but secondary, secondly this morning, in verses 4 to 5, we have the prayer of the church. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head. Give them for a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, and let their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Immediately we see the proper response of the church to the mockery of the world. What's the proper response of the church, friends? Prayer is the proper response. Let's look at what they pray. Firstly, they bring their complaint to God. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. The first words they uttered in this impassioned prayer are these. Hear, O our God. Oh, there's something here of a poetic symmetry, is there not, of the opening of the chapter. There we read, when Sanballat heard. Now we read the church praying. And the appeal to God is this, that God would hear. Never mind what Sanballat hears. That God would hear and that God would take note of all that is arrayed against his cause. Of course, in these words, they acknowledge that God has already heard. God already knows. They acknowledge that God is omniscient, that he knows all things. And then they, they, they replay before the Lord the oppression of the enemies. They say, we are despised. And really, in these words, in this prayer, in this simple prayer, hear O Lord God, for we are despised. a summary of the heart of the world against the church. Hatred. A completed hatred. It's not a growing hatred. It's not simply a dislike. It's not that they hate us more now than they did when Cain killed Abel. It's this very same hatred. Just like Sanballat and Tobiah, the reason why we're not being burned at the stake is because they can't. They're restrained from doing it. They would if they could. The hatred is there. It's complete and utter contempt for everything to do with God and his work. Whenever Nehemiah says that we are, be, we are despised, the, the word carries with it this sense of being trampled on, being treated like the dirt below the feet. There's an interesting use of this word, a familiar use of this word by the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah, the prophet, would have been contemporaneous with Ezra and Nehemiah. If he didn't live in the, the same days as what we have here, it was at least in their living memory. And in Zechariah 4, the prophet sees a vision of the restoration of the temple and of the rebuilding of the city of God. And as part of that vision, the word of the Lord comes to him in these words. For who hath despised the day of small things? So in Nehemiah's prayer, when he says we are despised, Nehemiah is decrying the mockery of the enemies of the gospel before the Lord in prayer, and he says they have despised the day of small things. But the overriding point in this prayer is this. It's God's work that's despised, not man's work. The hatred of the enemies is offensive to God's people because it is injurious to the honor of God himself. 
And because of that, secondly, they pray for the reversal of the oppression. He prays and turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity and cover not their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. Now there is no avoiding the full import of these words. This prayer is not a prayer for accommodation. Nehemiah is not praying here for peace with the world. He is not praying for a compromise. Whenever he prays that God would turn their reproach, he means that he is asking God to reverse the reproach back in the direction from which it has come. He prays for a complete reversal of the oppression such that the enemies themselves who are oppressing the church would receive the full force of that which they plan for the church itself. We can't get away from this. He's praying for the downfall of the enemies of God. Now, Nehemiah, remember, was a servant in the palace of Shushan in Babylon. He would have been there in the days of Esther the queen. He would have known about the plot by Haman to destroy the Jews and to hang Mordecai on the gallows. And he would have been very familiar with the disastrous end that Haman's plot met with. He was hanged on his own gallows. The very persecution, the very oppression that he planned for the people of God was turned back on his own head. This prayer then of Nehemiah is a prayer for God to reverse the situation just as he had in the plot of Haman. This is a prayer for the gallows of the enemy to be used against themselves. We sung in Psalm 9 that exact sentiment. You know, if it wasn't for the fact that God's word, his inspired word, penned these, they, these words were written for us and we sing them and we read them. If it wasn't for that, we would be too afraid to say them. But what does it say in Psalm 9? It says, the heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid in their own foot is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. There's one way in which God deals with his enemies. In Proverbs 26, Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein, and he that rolleth a stone, it will return upon him. That's what Nehemiah is praying for. There's a picture here of wicked men plotting the destruction of the innocent, but the very trap that they lay is the same trap that they themselves are taken in. But before we think that this prayer smacks of some kind of malice or vindictiveness on the part of Nehemiah, see thirdly that it is for God's cause to be vindicated that they pray, not for themselves. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. In the reproach that the people have suffered at the hands of their enemies, there are three aspects in view, three wrongs we could say. There's the harm done to the people themselves. They are harmed. They are mocked and ridiculed. 
then there's the sin that is committed against the holy gods. And then there's the depravity of the heart that commits the sin. So when the church prays for the retribution of God to be applied to her enemies, they're not praying for their own injury to be revenged. They're not praying that they might get their own back. Oh, that's so important. Rather, they are praying that the injury done to the justice of God would be put right. The text explains the ground for their prayer as being, for they have provoked thee to anger. Why do they pray this? Because they have sinned against God. That word provoked is a reference to offending the holy God of heaven by committing grievous sins against his just demands. It is God that has been offended. So whenever they pray that they would rule upon the enemies, they're effectively praying this, thy will be done. And they're not going beyond the boundaries of that. Remember, it's Moab and Ammon they're praying against. And so they're also praying in accordance with God's revealed will for Moab and Ammon. Two centuries earlier, God had pronounced judgment on these nations by the prophet Amos. At the end of Amos chapter 1 and into chapter 2, God declares his anger against these ungodly nations. And he decrees that they will be devoured by fire. Then later, in the prophecy of Zephaniah, we have the final mention in scripture of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Not as far as chronology goes, but as far as the canon of scripture goes. And we read in that prophecy, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people. Whereby they have reproached my people. And magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom, and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even the breeding of nettles and salt pits, a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. What we have here in this prayer, then, is a prayer for the will of God to be accomplished. The destruction of those who wickedly oppose the cause of Christ in the world. In this example of Nehemiah's prayer, then we have a pattern to follow in our day to day. Are we oppressed and are we hated by the world today? Well, yes, we are. Well, then pray. God hears our prayers. God hears the oppression of the wicked. And God knows all about it. He knows everything that is done against his church. He knows everything that is done against the work of the gospel. He hears every reproach brought to bear against you. He hears it all. And because he hears it all, you pray. You pray that the enemies of the gospel would be frustrated in their purpose. You pray that the plans to legislate against the cause of Christ would fall to the ground. You pray that those who stubbornly resist the offers of grace and set themselves rather to militate against the work of God, you pray that they would be defeated. How so? That they would be defeated in the overthrow of their rebellion, the salvation of their souls. What greater destruction of rebellion can there be than that? 
is not vindictive to pray that God's word would have free course and be glorified. But we mustn't personalize the battle, friends, this morning. The Apostle Paul was a mocker. He poured scorn and contempt upon the church of Christ. He sought to persecute them, to murder them. And the reproach that he sought to rule upon the church was ruled back on him. How so? God gloriously and graciously saved him. That's how so. Then he put him to work in the very cause that he slandered. Do the world lay traps for the church? Then pray that those traps would backfire. That instead of damaging the church, they would advance its cause. Does our government pass legislation that seeks to frustrate the progress of the gospel in our day? That seeks to criminalize the gospel? Yes, it does then pray that God would use that very same legislation as a way of accelerating the spread of the gospel. What a glorious reversal. Pray for the reversal of all of the schemes of evil. Pray for the reversal of the oppression. Pray for the reversal of the reproach of God's enemies. So we have considered the mockery of the world Thought something of the prayer of the church. But just as we close this morning, notice in verse 6, the work of the hearts. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. Here we have this oppressed people, an oppressed people with little signs of outward success a people derided, a people mocked, but they are God's people. And they are in God's service. So despite all that we've considered, all that we have seen about the scorn and the reproach of the world being poured out upon them, in spite of all of that, here we see, firstly, that having prayed, so they work, so built we the wall. In one way, child of God, this morning, nothing has changed from verse 1. Then in verse 1, we read this, we builded the wall. And then after that, we have this record of all the mocking. Then we have Nehemiah's prayer. But then the narrative continues again. So built we the wall. We builded the wall. So built we the wall. The people of God don't break breath. They keep working on despite it all. While it's all happening. While we've been talking about the reproach and the scorn. While Nehemiah has been praying. All along that time the people have been building the wall. All of that effort in chapter 3. We don't have time to read the whole chapter. But scan your eyes down that chapter. What you'll find there is all the detail. All the people involved. All the work that they were doing. How it all fits together. None of that work has changed. It progresses apace. So built we the wall. But this building work comes on the back of the promise of God. It's not simply some national endeavor. 
They're not building the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. They're building the walls of Zion. This is God's work. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. At all points, at every stage, the whole mission was God's work. The prophet Amos, the end of his prophecy, he prophesied that this moment would come. And they prophesied that this moment would succeed. In Amos 9, we read, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, and I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel. And they shall build the waste cities, and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards, and drink the wine thereof. They also shall make gardens, and eat the fruit of them. This day had been promised by God. And this day had come. So built we the wall. This wall building work then was God's work. The entire book of Nehemiah, it revolves around these walls. It is as if the success of God's work itself depends on the walls being built. It's as though the promise was not going to be accomplished until the work was done. Which brings us in to see, secondly, that when God is in it, when God is in it, the work goes forward. And all the wall was joined together onto the half thereof. It doesn't mean that the work was only half done. It doesn't mean the work was somehow deficient. Rather, the emphasis here is on the progress of the complete work. All of those detailed allotments in chapter 3, all of the various parts of the work, all of them without exception, were done to the halfway point. It was all progressing rapidly. To be joined together, it tells us the work was being coordinated. It was bound together. It was all attached. The whole piece was coming together. The work was progressing in rapid, consistent, coordinated strides at such a pace, in fact, that it caused great alarm to the enemies of the church when they seen it. Just think of all those stations that are mentioned in chapter 3. How small the progress must have looked outwardly. They couldn't see each other. We know that because we, we read of the trumpet in chapter 4. When the trumpet's called, then you need to bind band together. They couldn't see what anyone else was doing. They could only see the little bit they had done themselves. More than 40 groups of workers around that perimeter, all doing their little bit. But then suddenly it all comes into view. It all comes together. And it's already half done. It's already half done. The wall building work was God's work and so it speeds ahead. But finally, in all of this, we're presented here with this view of God's people. This is the view of God's people that we will leave with this morning. God's people doing God's work from the heart. For the people had a mind to work. This is the model of Christian service, working from the heart. Why were all these people named in chapter 3? Why were they all so eager in the work? Why were they prepared to make such sacrifices to lay down life and limb? 
Why were they prepared to take such risks in order to build this wall? It's because they had their heart in the work. Their heart. Of all the words that could have been used, of all the choice that the Spirit had amongst the Hebrew language, he chose this word that's translated mind in our text. There cannot be a more comprehensive description. It means the heart. It means the motives. It means the feelings, the affections, the desires, the will. It's their aims. It's their principles. It's their thoughts. Friends, it's everything. They are putting their all into the work of God. Their whole person, they have given themselves to Christ and his service. This was no outward show. An outward show would have failed. The odds were stacked against them. They had no resources. They were building with burnt dust. Outward show would have failed. It was in their hearts to work for the Lord. And there's a strong inference here that the very preparation of their heart itself was such that it could only have been the Lord's doing. It's similar to what we read in 2 Chronicles 29. God had prepared the people for the thing was done suddenly. God had put the work in their hearts. It was no superficial interest, no hobby. They weren't playing at church. It was a deep-seated, passionate conviction for the Lord. And they were going to do whatever it took. So they work. There's no fear. There's no doubt. There's no intimidation. They're just doing the Lord's work from the heart. This is our pattern then, friends, this morning for church building work today. The work of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a work that can only be done from the heart. There's no room in the work of the gospel for nominal Christianity. If you are here this morning and you are outside of Christ, you are not helping the cause of Christ. When you put your money in the plate, you are not helping the cause of Christ while you remain an enemy of the gospel. When you sit on your seat this morning as an enemy of Christ, you are not advancing the cause of Christ. This is a work that can only be advanced from the heart. Whenever we work from the heart as a child of God, there's no despondency. The mockery of the world has no impact on us. We're immune from their scorn. If things go well, we are to work while the world laugh at us. We are to work. If outward progress looks like a fox could trample it down, we are to work. We keep working because the work matters. These walls that the church is building today matter. Without the walls, there is no work. Until the walls are built, the promise remains unfulfilled. And Christ has said that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Child of God, this morning, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that Christ is building his church today? 
Are you laboring in this church building work with your whole mind, with your soul and your strength, with all your heart? May God write his word on our hearts. Let's stand for prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious God, we thank thee and praise thee this morning for thy word. We thank thee, O Lord, for the challenge to our hearts. But Lord, how we pray that thou would take what has been of thyself. Lord, that the, the words of man would fall to the ground. That, Lord, the opinions of mere man would be lost, would be forgotten. And that as everyone rises from worship this morning, it would be the word of God ringing in their ears. O oh, take thy word, we pray. Apply it to the hearts of everyone gathered. And if there be any outside of Christ, O oh Lord, we pray that there would be some word read or sung or preached, some word that would be used of thy spirit, some cog in the wheel of that regenerating work of the Spirit of God. Come, Lord, we pray. Accomplish thy purpose this morning. We pray asking for the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.